Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Poppy, producer of The Lundown. There are still some tickets available to our Christmas quiz next Thursday evening at the London School of Architecture. For this very special show, we have four guests competing to win points in the London satirical quiz of this year in architecture. We will be covering some of our favourite stories, revisiting some of the highs and lows in this year's built environment news. Featuring some of our favourite guests on the show, plus some exciting news faces, this will be a really fun evening. There'll be drinks and a chance to mill around and meet some of the team afterwards. We would really love to see some of you there. If you're interested, check out our website, open-city.org.uk forward slash events to book your tickets. Now, on with the show. New office plans threaten to flatten Paula Moyer's landmark Museum of London. Government accused of collusion with industry over flammable cladding used at Grenfell. Lambeth Council shortlists three architects to clear away and redevelop the acclaimed Central Hill estate. Trellick Tower residents call on Kensington and Chelsea Council for meaningful co-design of new estate additions. And Open City launches the Academy of British Housing. My name is Merlin Fulcher, I'm an architectural journalist, and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to The London. My guest this week is Ella Jessel. Ella is Features and Investigations Editor at the Architects Journal, The AJ. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back. New York architects Dilla Scafidio and Renfro and London firm Shepard Robson, the team behind London's axed, pyramid-shaped Centre for Music Concert Hall, have unveiled a new set of plans to redevelop the current but soon-to-be-vacated Museum of London site. This is a story that's been reported on by Ella in the AJ. The City of London is consulting on concept designs to knock down the Paula Moyer Design Museum of London, which opened in 1976 as part of the Barbican Estate and also Bastion House, a 1970s office building above the museum's podium. According to studies by the city's Property Investment Board, the existing buildings at 140 to 150 London Wall are, quote, at the end of their design lives. Uh, They also claim they were not designed to a modern fire or structural standard and would require significant remedial work to bring them back into safe use. 
It wants to build a new office-led scheme, consisting of a pair of buildings surrounded by a new public plaza, which would help to contribute to the funding needed to move the Museum of London to its new Stanton Williams and Asif Khan designed home in West Smithfield. It comes nine months after the £288 million Centre for Music, backed by the Barbican, the London Symphony Orchestra and the Guildhall School of Music and Drama, was officially dropped. Dilla Scafidio and Renfro and Shepard Robson won the Concert Hall Commission in the autumn of 2017 when they were selected ahead of rival bids from practices including Amanda Levette, Norman Foster, Frank Gehry, Snow Hetter and Renzo Piano. Dubbed London Wall West, the new scheme will include a contemporary performance and event space called the Culture Cap, which will sit on top of one of the buildings. The plans include a new network of public spaces, including access to the site's hidden Roman wall and improvements to the Barbican's high walk through use of new gardens and greening. The document said the centrepiece of the high walk level is imagined as a distinctive figural bowl that creates a moment of surreal respite from the city around it with a meadow-like character. So Ella, what's this all about? Until recently, this prominent bit of land right in one of the Square Mile's most architecturally acclaimed neighbourhoods was earmarked for a massive new and somewhat controversial concert venue. Now, in the place of a major cultural use, there are plans to build offices with some parkland and put a smaller performance and event space on one of the roofs. Will these latest plans, currently out for public consultation, be met with approval, especially considering Barbican residents are notorious for strongly criticising new developments in the area? I think it's all about reduced ambition, really, or perhaps you could describe it as a large reality check in terms of what could be delivered here. I think the reason the Centre for Music uh, was scrapped came down to uh, the simple fact that they could not raise the amount of private capital they needed to get the scheme off the ground. And I think the pandemic sort of really killed it off. Um, I remember actually going to the unveiling of the Centre for Music scheme uh, back back when it was first proposed, and it was a very showy event, the kind of event you'd expect for a scheme that needed to come up with a lot of a lot of upfront money. Um, and um, yeah, I think in terms of whether the Barbican residents will oppose it, I, I did actually have a little look at the Barbican um, Association newsletter, uh, as you do, and um, I think they will oppose it. Um, they did a poll asking whether they should challenge the decision or, or sort of or back it, I suppose. And they had 400 residents voting, which is quite a good sample. And um, 80% said they, they wanted to challenge these latest plans for what is being called London Wall West. And it's so it's interesting because it was a it was a cultural space and now it's potentially going to be redeveloped as offices. If you wander around Barbican, it it, it feels like it's part of the neighbourhood, and you can sort of see how Barbican residents would see it as like part of their turf. Like yeah, this is their backyard, and it's being taken away from them. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's stitched into the Barbican site, isn't it? Especially through the walk, the the high walk, and um, it is it, it does feel when you visit it very much like the the Barbican site. I think, and I think obviously the Barbican was originally. Um, on board with the Centre for Music plans as a sort of key partner, if I'm not mistaken. Um, whereas this is much more a, a City of London scheme uh, by the Property Investment Board. Um, and I think that's perhaps reflected in the in what they're seeking to do, which is an office-led scheme, as you say, Merlin, which also um, does contain a cultural offer. And it, it, they say they are trying to sort of um, make it a gateway to the culture mile. Um, so... Um, yeah, it, it, it seems like, um, does seem like more of an office-led scheme than a cultural offer. 
But that's one of the things I don't get. So when I look at the consultation, the top line says this is about making money to pay for the new museum over in West Smithfield, right? But hang on, just a, like a year or so ago, this wasn't about making money for that because that bit of land, this bit of land, was going to require loads of extra cash uh, to turn it into a into a centre for music. So it, it seems like yeah, the story's changed somewhat. Yeah, I think it has. I think it definitely has. And I think um, most people were slightly sceptical about the idea of the centre of music, that centre for music would ever really happen. Um, it was almost seemed to be. Uh, you know, an, an architectural showpiece sort of proposed to see whether it would catch catch the interest of people. I don't think it. I don't think it did. So this is a much more sober proposal, isn't it? So just thinking about the, the buildings that are currently there. So the Museum of London. Uh, it's quite a famous structure. It's got this really interesting kind of circular garden in the middle of a roundabout at the front, and then there's Bastion House. This huge tower block that looms above it now we're being told in this consultation that the current buildings fail to meet standards we're also being told that 90 percent of their materials will be recycled in any redevelopment and there's even a study by the respected engineer bureau happold saying the best approach here for this bit of land is quote full redevelopment with high sustainability aspirations obviously we've heard heard phrases like this being said before elsewhere um now, you know, there's an office building there. There's a museum there. Um, could these be repurposed just as buildings are often repurposed elsewhere? Um, and considering the widely acknowledged embodied carbon cost of demolition to rebuild, is there an argument for retrofit here instead? Yeah, there definitely is. And I think that's one of the arguments the Barbican residents are, will be focusing on. Um, and I did actually read an interesting piece in the Architects newspaper back when the Centre for Music got scrapped by Jason Sayer. And, and he argued that there was a, actually a, a major refurb of the Museum of London in 2010 by Wilkinson Eyre. Um, and yet, you know, nine years later, um, there they are saying that it's deemed not worthy of saving. Um, so because in, in 2019, it was given a certificate of immunity from listing. Um, the building, meaning that, you know, it, it meant that it opened the door for the Centre for Music redevelopment and now for this for this next scheme to happen. Um, and and Sayer was was questioning why there was such a drastic change of opinion after such heavy investment in the building. And I think that's actually a really good question. I mean, I think there there are questions about how loved that building really is. It's quite an awkward site. It almost feels inside out when you walk around it. Um, but yeah, I think that the retrofit, that would definitely be a huge um, argument about this scheme. Um, and I think it's interesting that originally when um, uh, DSR proposed the Centre for Music, we didn't hear this, you know, there wasn't an immediate sort of um, outpouring of um, anger, I don't remember, um, about the Museum of London or Bastion House. And I think that's quite interesting because it perhaps shown how the debate has moved on in the last few years in terms of embodied carbon and the sustainability arguments have just really come to the fore um, and we saw that with the tulip getting rejected and i think that that that, that is going to be a big part of this debate going forward about this site the government failed to crack down on a loophole allowing hundreds of high-rise buildings to be clad with combustible materials because it was colluding with the construction industry the grenfell tower inquiry has been told this is a story that's been covered in the aj a lawyer for a group of bereaved survivors and residents of the Grenfell Tower tragedy said the death of the 72 people was resulted unintentionally from a, quote, political ideology which broke free from common sense and safety constraints. 
Stephanie Barwise QC, who was providing an opening statement to the sixth module of the second phase of the inquiry, said government's, quote, willful blindness to fire safety issues is one of the major scandals of our time. She said, quote, the consistent pattern of inadequate investigation and suppression of reports into fires goes beyond mere accident and involves government collusion. Barwise continued, government's tendency was to regard fires as something to be covered up or trivialised, such that the public might be reassured and to avoid criticism of underlying regulations, thereby continuing to allow industry the latitude it wanted. She went on to say that the government's dependence on the construction industry had seen it become, quote, the junior partner in that relationship, thereby permitting the industry's exploitations of the regulations. A government lawyer will also provide a 15-minute opening statement on behalf of the Department for Leveling Up, Housing and Communities. Several former government employees will be cross-examined by the Grenfell Tower Inquiry during Module 6, which will investigate the role of testing, government and fire risk assessments in causing the Grenfell Tower fire. Five former ministers are set to give evidence during 12 weeks of hearing. Uh, they are former Housing Secretary Eric Pickles, former Housing Ministers Gavin Barwell and Brandon Lewis, and former Junior Housing Ministers James Wharton and Stephen Williams. So Ella, what's this all about? How did we get to a stage where the Grenfell fire is being labelled as the unintended consequence of a political ideology which broke free from common sense and safety constraints? Is it an accurate description of the state of affairs both at Grenfell and across the sector? Well, I think it's pretty explosive stuff. Um, the inquiry is now in its sixth module, the second phase, um, and, and this one focuses on the role of the government and the legislative regime around fire safety, which will go straight all the way back to New Labour um, in the late 90s. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of shocking, if not entirely unexpected, it's, it's still shocking. And um, yeah, Stephanie Barwise, the lawyer you've just been quoting, um, said that successive administrations were responsible for this collusion with the construction industry um, and outlined how results of investigations into earlier cladding fires, such as Lacanal in 2009, were suppressed. Um, and it's just shocking, really. Um, she talked about coroner's recommendations in 2013, which included, um, uh, you know, calls for um, the government to retrofit sprinklers um, and a review of building guidance, in particular, the approved document B, um, which is the, it's the guidance that, that um, covers external fire spread. Um, and um, this this was just not done. Um, and Barwise, interestingly, as you point out, Merlin, sort of links this to um, ideology um, and a political ideology, I think, specifically of, of deregulation. Um, and I think that what she's talking about is, you know, what, what we know in the construction industry is the sort of bonfire of building regulations. Um, and it, yeah, it's just really interesting to, to see it come down to this um, quite uh, shocking and um, sad, but also just fascinating to see what, you know, what form the, these uh, policies are going to have in the inquiry and how, how it's going to be looked into. And I think that's really interesting. You're talking about that moment, that kind of bonfire building regulations. And obviously it was preceded by the, the bonfire of the, the quangos. And um, there was a kind of a lot of rhetoric around the time about uh, these being measures that were intended to to basically speed up housing delivery and to kind of solve the housing crisis. And this would sort of 
uh, you know, lift off the shackles and allow these these problems to be resolved. Funny enough, those problems are still very much alive despite despite those measures. And um, yeah, what was it really about? What was the, what were those uh, de- these deregulation forces? What was really being trying to be achieved? There? I think there is a legitimate question mark over the idea of whether this um, you know there was a, a one in one out policy on regulation. I mean, what you know, the argument was that it was it would speed up housing delivery, but you know, have we seen that? No, we haven't. And do we still have a housing crisis? Yes, we do. So, um, yeah, there's a question mark over whether it really came down to private developers um, and and their desire to, let's face it, make more money. What do you think, Merlin? Um, we spend so much time talking about the housing crisis on the show. We're going to talk about it a lot uh, in this particular episode. And, you know, if I look at it, uh, you know, we've had some really interesting reports out this week um, looking into the amount people in private rent pay in London. So, for example, uh, Londoners are being overcharged a, tw- a total of £25.4 billion for their accommodation between the years 2012 and 2020. Um, that seems like enough money to build a lot of affordable housing or social housing to me. Uh, and also the new Economics Foundation and even the Telegraph newspaper um, are calling on the government to shift spending uh, from housing uh, benefits uh, to actual bricks. You know, stop subsidising the problem and start building the uh, solution. So what I think is um, you look at something like the deregulation as a way to build more homes. Maybe is there another way uh, that we can boost housing delivery without cutting corners? Well, there should be. I think that the government needs to do more, as you say, to build to build more housing and councils need to be supported to build council housing. You have to end the right to buy all the things that we talk about over and over again. And I think that, but there's a lot of barriers in the way still. I don't see a lot of joined up thinking and um, talking about private renters being overcharged. I mean, the landlord lobby is very strong and it includes many sitting members of parliament. And is it in their interest to correct this? Thank you for supporting The Lundown by listening, subscribing and sharing the show. The Lundown is produced by Open City and the London Society. Open City is a charity best known for the Open House Festival, but also for our tours, education programmes and events. The show, along with the festival and schools programmes, are free because we believe everyone should have access to the tools and resources to learn about and experience the built environment. To keep this show free for everyone, we rely on those of you who can afford it to donate the equivalent of one coffee per month. If this is you, please go to open-city.org.uk forward slash flat white to donate and help keep these conversations accessible, inclusive and honest. Last week, some amazing people signed up. We had Jamie Hammer, Sebastian Kopf, and Anna Lisa McSqueenie. Thank you all very much. If you're not in a position to donate, then please keep supporting by listening and sharing amongst your friends and colleagues. Architects Hawkins Brown, PRP and BPTW have been shortlisted to draw up a master plan for the highly controversial redevelopment of the 1960s Central Hill Estate in South London. The successful practice, to be named in the new year, will draw up plans to demolish and rebuild the 450-home Central Hill Estate in Crystal Palace, designed by Rosemary Sternster and the Lambeth Borough Architects Department. This is another story covered by Ella in the AJ. It is a second chance 
was to redesign the estate for PRP, which was appointed by Lambeth Council back in 2014 to draw up options for its redevelopment. But these plans never came forward, and despite fierce opposition from residents, Lambeth decided in 2017 that refurbishment would be too expensive and wanted to pursue full redevelopment of the estate instead. The council argues that families on the estate, which is built into a steeply sloping site, are living in poor quality homes with problems such as damp, mould and accessibility problems for older and mobility disabled residents. But the existing residents argue that while the estate has been neglected, its homes are structurally sound. A recently launched crowdfunder campaign called on the council to rethink its plans and refurbish this estate instead. It came as demolition on the estate has already started. Truce Love House, a four-storey building on the edge of the estate, was knocked down in November to make way for 31 new homes designed by BPTW. The estate has been rejected twice for listing, once in 2016 and again in August when Historic England said it did not believe the buildings had, quote, evident significance. So Ella, what's this all about? Lambeth Council has been attempting to regenerate Central Hill for close to a decade now, even despite growing opposition from residents and architectural conservationists. Clearly, similar attempts in the past have failed. So why is the council, with this latest competition, apparently trying the very same thing again and not taking a different approach, such as retrofit or sensitive renewal? You know, I don't think we can describe it really as a failed attempt. I think... Um, that while there's been a lot of opposition, they've never really managed to get get anything going. And I think that's partly why the story of this estate is so sad, because people have been left in limbo for years with demolition hanging over their heads since it was was decided in 2017 that this was going to go ahead. Um, But a master plan has never been drawn up, um, and there's been various changes. You know, Lambeth decided to take um, the scheme in-house and develop it under Homes for Lambeth, a development management team that was appointed was then ditched and they re-ran the, you know, the, the procurement for, for getting a new architect. So I think it's just, it's been going on a long time, as you say. As this goes on, the numbers on the estate of, exi- of an original residents have been dwindling and more and more void properties as people move off and they're not replaced. Or if they're filled, they're filled with people on the temporary housing register. Um, I, mean, I went down there three years ago for a story I was writing about, about estate ballots that's you know Sadiq Khan's policy of balloting residents where more than 150 homes are going to be demolished on a on a housing estate in London, um, and at, at that point it was it was already like a feeling of resignation. I'm not saying that people aren't still going to fight these plans because they will, but there there's just this, a kind of feeling that these buildings were good buildings and the only thing wrong with them was the fact they hadn't been looked after properly. Yeah, the, the conversation can be had about you know, whether or not um, refurbishment could be an option. But as far as um, the council is concerned, it's not. They're they're going for rebuilding and that's what they want to see. And I think that's really interesting. You observed a a feeling of resignation among residents because, I mean, is it almost the case that the the council is also kind of resigned to just, just keep on going, that it spent so much money on this approach over the years that it sees no option but just to keep going for it? Like, what does it take to change to change course here? estate regeneration is very divisive and you know yes there's a housing crisis and um, architects can sometimes be and you know commentators can sometimes be guilty of putting buildings above people but in this you have to look at it case by case and on this estate the residents didn't want the estate to be demolished the same on Cressingham Gardens 
Um, and yeah, it, there's other estates in, in like in South London, like Ledbury Estate, where the buildings are, are not structurally sound, and of course they have to be demolished. But in this case, it seems like the Lambeth just took picked an option, and I think what they what they should do is look again and and see. Um, in light of the climate crisis, in light of the opposition from residents, in light of the changes to how estate regeneration is done post-Grenfell and post-balloting policy brought, brought in by Sadiq Khan. Because, yeah, the residents have been fighting tooth and nail, but they can't do it on their own. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think it could be refurbed and it should be. I mean, that's it, because certainly Central Hill, it's just one of several architecturally acclaimed sites in Lambeth uh, where the council's been... Cr- criticised for pushing ahead with plans for demolition and redevelopment. Another one, as you mentioned, and we've covered it certainly extensively, is is Cressingham Gardens. Some of these spots also feature in our South London Cycle Tour, uh, where we celebrate architectural heritage. Um, I mean, is is Lambeth possibly getting unfairly criticised for, I guess, what it would say is doing its best to build new homes? Um, uh, although, you know, or is this is this clearly at the expense of architectural heritage? Uh, and, and is the council somewhat out of step with a kind of wider growing recognition of cultural, social and environmental value of, of protecting these structures? Yeah, I think it's out of step. I think that there are a lot of factors that need to be weighed up when considering these estate demolition programmes. And as I said, I think it needs to be a case by case basis where where residents want new homes and where their homes are in the condition where they you know they shouldn't be living in them and clearly clearly they should be redeveloped but if residents on the existing estate are calling for their homes to be to not be demolished they need they should be listened to and there there are huge environmental factors now to consider um and yeah i think that another issue with what's been happening in lambeth is there's a lack of um overall strategy for these estates and they're sort of picking off small sections bit by bit. So we saw that on Cressingham Gardens with Roper's Walk, which I think has gone had to be rerun, the planning application. Um, but residents on the on the Cressingham Gardens would say, this is the one by Brockwell Park, would say that this is a kind of salami slicing of estates and that you get permission from a small demolition and that paves the way for, for more demolition. Um, and that's arguably what has happened at Central Hill as well with the Trusslove House scheme you know, this piecemeal demolition without an overall master plan um, just con- contributes to the feeling that, it, you know, that this is going to happen and it's inevitable. Residents of West London's landmark Trellick Tower have been granted an emergency debate over redevelopment plans by the leading architects, Howard Tompkins. The debate was granted after campaigners gathered 2,500 petition signatures asking for a meaningful process of co-design to be begun for the site. People who oppose the redevelopment and live in the building, which is the centrepiece of Erno Goldfinger's iconic Cheltenham estate, filled the public gallery at a full meeting of Kensington and Chelsea Council where the issue was debated. The contentious redevelopment, a story we originally covered this summer on Lundown, dates back to 2008 when the council, despite huge protests from local people and architectural conservation groups, demolished the Edenham residential care home that formed part of Goldfinger's world-renowned social housing project. Howard Tompkins' redevelopment plans, which were recently submitted for planning, include the total demolition of a garage block and the famous Trellick Tower street art wall, known as the Graffiti Hall of Fame. In their place would be a new workspace block, a row of two-storey single-aspect houses, a residential block of six storeys, and another residential block 
of 14 stories. Concerns over insensitive development have also been echoed across the river at Elephant and Castle, where residents are separately battling over development on a site known as Kennington Stage, close to the Cinema Museum and a listed water tower house conversion. Cheltenham estate resident James Poxon, who is also an architect and founding partner of Studio IDK, attended the council debate and sent us this report. On the 1st of December, I attended a packed and lively public gallery in the Kensington and Chelsea Council Chamber. There, I witnessed a debate over a petition to redesign proposed plans for the new homes at Edenham Way on the listed estate of Trellick Tower designed by Erna Goldfinger. Residents are calling for a return to the drawing board to allow time for a new community co-design process to occur. Impassioned speeches were given by residents calling for a scheme that pays greater respect to the estate's architectural and cultural integrity and provides more social housing. In short, for the council to keep up its commitment to change in the wake of the Grenfell tragedy. Conservative councillor Kim Taylor-Smith was intransigent in his position that it is up to the council to define what community co-design is on its sites. Labour councillors implored him to reconsider these estates as the possessions of their tenants and future families, rather than profitable local authority assets for the external market. The difference in views was epitomised by Taylor Smith's clear admission that residents do not have the final say on estate redevelopment. Whether the council will listen to the 3,000-plus petition signatories remains unclear. However, it is clear that the local authority has a long way to go in gaining the trust of residents who see themselves as custodians of the unique social and architectural heritage of Trellick Tower and Edenham Way. Okay, so Ella, what's this all about? Clearly the council here is facing a lot of opposition to this scheme uh, that's now at the planning stage. Uh, Do these opposing residents have a point here about insensitive overdevelopment? Uh, Could meaningful co-design be a way forward for this site? Um, I mean, realistically, whatever gets built there should be a source of community pride uh, rather than conflict if it was transformed in the right way. Yeah, I think there seems to be very strong concern here about how residents have been consulted and the council has done three rounds of consultation, I think, but um, judging from the graphs that have been shared online, there's still a lot of opposition to the designs. Um, And the council sort of is pointing to the changes it's made, um, showing how the scheme has developed in in consultation with residents, like reducing the high um, retention of the graffiti wall, which I think was one of the main um, uh, sources of opposition from local residents. But I think residents you know counter argue that by saying well they came in with something that was really high originally and they've kind of like you know knocked it down to show that they're to make it look like they're sort of you know consulting with residents when actually they're just doing what they always wanted to do and it's very strong feelings around around the estate and obviously residents of Trellick Tower are very proud of where they live quite rightly um and I think but the, the submitted plans I had a little look um and it looks quite interesting what, what, what they're proposing, sort of rein, reinstating the original podium tower, which is, was demolished in um, 1989 for a housing scheme, which was never implemented. Um, and the architects, Howard Tompkins, say it's taking it back to Goldfinger's original design intent for the site. Um, as for what it will deliver, it's you know 112 new homes, and the, the planning documents show that uh, 56 
uh, well, of those will be affordable and 51 units will be so- social rent. So that's 90% of the affordable homes for social rent, which is, um, you know, a, a decent, decent um, proportion, I suppose. Um, but yeah, I think I think there's there's legitimate concerns. Um, overdevelopment is, you know, is sometimes a difficult word because um, who decides what overdevelopment is? I think the residents have pointed to previous um, planning documents um, for the area, which which showed that there was a high threshold of I think it was six stories so obviously that's above that but I think the, from the council perspective they say times have moved on and since then they've got new targets and yeah so it's an interesting debate for sure. Finally we're going to discuss the launch of the Academy of British Housing and its flagship learning experience the Baylight Fellowship. It's been created by Open City and you can find more details on our website. Our core premise is that Britain's housing system is broken and needs a courageous rethink. To do this, we need a radical transformation in the way housing commissioners judge their priorities. But change doesn't happen through dry lectures. It comes from experience. We ran with this and realised that when people look for housing inspiration and new delivery models, they often look outside the UK. But actually, there's an enormous wealth of very successful historic and recent development, often in or quite close to London, which is overlooked. So we set about drawing on Open City's formidable expertise and network of people who care for Britain's most important architectural heritage to create an unparalleled itinerary of day and residential tour experiences, taking our Baylight Fellows inside sublime housing to hear from residents. We also paired these locations with amazing speakers on the timeless and human-centred qualities of homes which really thrive and last forever, and created a really fun itinerary where participants of the course, the Baylight Fellows, travel and learn together. Through this journey, the Baylight Fellows will gain a deeper understanding of simple, often inexpensive and time-honoured housing principles and features which could restore the generous tradition of long-lasting homes where people truly enjoy living. We think a Baylight Fellow will be someone working in the private or public sector who is an ambitious project or development lead facing difficult decisions on the future of housing and keen to skill up alongside like-minded people. If you're interested and would like to be considered for the programme, just visit www.academyofhousing.org forward slash Baylight fellowship where you can drop us an email. So Ella, we've just spent much of the show discussing major problems in housing, a lot of them seemingly intractable. Uh, What do you think about the Academy of British Housing and its vision to transform housing outcomes via a sort of experiential reboot and retuning of the sector's priorities and aspirations? This sounds like a really interesting programme. So where will you be taking the Baylight Fellows? Well, it's a a great question because uh, we found that typically when when people think about... um, uh, inspiration for housing they often say oh yeah we need to go travel around the world and we need to go and look at this housing project here and there and but actually there's there's loads of stuff um in and around london um so we are working on the final list right now but we're certainly looking at places like lyde end uh in bledlow which is a, a craig and adlington amazing housing project like the most beautiful homes set in uh, a stunning uh, garden uh, landscape. We're also looking at slightly more recent things like Accordia in Cambridge, which is an extraordinarily successful and well-recognised uh, neighbourhood. And then closer to home, things like the Span Housing in Blackheath, but then also um, you know, more uh, sort of anarchic grassroots places like uh, Bonington Square in Vauxhall, uh, or self-build experiments that happened on the Isle of Dogs. Um, and so really what it is, it's about going in there and seeing an experience 
experiencing what makes these places these places some of which are uh, half a century old uh, some of which are 25 years old um just thriving constantly thriving places which you expect will probably look even better in 200 years compared to how they do now uh, and this is about uh really about long-term stewardship you know too often homes are built people move in uh they're not very happy with the home they do their best to incre- increase the house price and then they sell it on for another home where they rinse and repeat um you know too often the experience of living in a home is about uh extending it or you know revamping it or making it uh just simply more valuable and and that's where uh the intrinsic worth of a home comes from and and what this is really all about is instead uh focusing on the human qualities and the experience of of living within it um and to recognize the simple uh design approaches the simple delivery approaches the simple landscaping approaches which will mean that we can create homes which are which are no longer cynical which are truly uh, generous and truly sustainable in the truest uh, sense of the word yeah it sounds really good Ella, it's been an immense pleasure to feature you on our 45th episode of London, the last one of 2021, before we do London Live next week at the London School of Architecture Christmas quiz special uh, on the 16th of December. I hope everybody listening has their tickets available on Open City's website. Um, where can listeners uh, stay up to speed on your amazing work? And you're writing as investigations editor, features investigations editor on the AJ. Uh, the Architects Journal. We've got a Liverpool issue coming up, which everyone should check out. Fantastic. You heard it here first. And uh, thanks again, Ella. I hope you're, we can feature you on the show many times again in 2022. Thanks, Merlin. Happy 45th episode. You've been listening to The Lundown a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag London, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.